I would love for you to open uh, in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 4. And before I pray for us, uh, let me just say thanks, Scott, for leading us in that prayer. That was bold and hard to say. And um, Man, it's true. It's tempting to get distracted from Jesus by other things. And if you pay attention to the news at all, you're going to hear all kinds of ideas in how we solve these kinds of problems in our society. But the fact of the matter is, there's only one answer, right? It is Jesus Christ. Uh, We need Christ. And in your prayer, you had one particular line, Jesus is what you have to say, God. If you want to know what God has to say about these kinds of things, look to Christ. And interestingly, that's going to be some of our subject matter this morning. So let me pray for us. God, we do lift up these families, and my response to this personally was to just be weary of these kinds of tragedies, these kinds of evil acts, which man violently commits against man, dishonoring the image of God in his fellow man, in his neighbor. And so we do pray for those victims and their families, and we pray that you would use this tragedy to bring to them the hope of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that as we sort through situations like this, events like this, that where we would ultimately land is just firmly on the rock of Christ, that we would not be distracted by talking heads and two different sides of a debate which is really irrelevant for those who belong in the kingdom of God. And that instead, we would love like Christ loves and we would extend grace like Christ does. That we would point people to you, that we ourselves would just be broken at your feet. And that we would love well in a way that brings honor to the name of Christ. And Lord, we desperately need you to do that in us, through us, to bear that kind of fruit. And we thank you so much for your word. Your word, the scriptures, where we find your word, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of all that you have to say. And I pray that we would be people who are driven to the scriptures out of a deep hunger for you to know you, to encounter your grace more, to see the love of Christ manifest through your word. And so, Lord, please do speak to us this morning, we pray. We also ask for the kids in the back of this building, God, that you would speak your word to them, that you would breathe life into their souls, that, that they might be born again in the hope of the gospel. So bless the activities and teaching and things that they're doing back there. And we just look to you as the all-sufficient one in everything. Amen. Well, hopefully you're in Matthew chapter 4 already. If not, please do turn there. And uh, there's a common phrase that comes up in my house all the time. And it's a phrase that I actually wish I would hear around church more often. 
Uh, I hear it from my children just about every day, or probably more accurately, several times a day. In fact, I've already heard it today from the mouth of my children at least four times. My seven-year-old son, Soren, is the biggest culprit of this phrase. He passionately exclaims it maybe as many as a dozen times a day. And if you have a seven-year-old boy, you probably know where I'm going with this. Two words I hear enough every day to drive me crazy. It's the phrase, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Like 10 minutes after he eats, I'm hungry. Uh, I hear this phrase around my house so often, You, if you like just could hear the audio of my home, you would probably think I don't ever feed my kids, right? But they eat breakfast, they eat lunch, they eat dinner, they're like hobbits, they sometimes have a second breakfast, a second dinner, whatever, two or three snacks just about every day. But the reason I wish I would hear this more around the church is not because I wish that you were literally hungry and in need of a snack, but because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. That's going to be the entirety of our text this morning. Quoting the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 8, Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And because that's true, we as Christians should be hungry all the time, constantly. We should be hungry to hear the scriptures. We should be hungry to fill our souls with the good news of the gospel. We should be hungry to meet with God in his word. We should be feasting our hearts on the goodness and the wisdom of God every single day in the words that he has spoken. And so this morning, I want to drive home this idea as we continue in this series, how the gospel works. I really want to drive home this idea that the gospel makes us hungry. And of course, in one sense, we have to say the gospel fills us completely, right? It satisfies us utterly. We have peace with God. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have hope for the future, even when tragedy assails us. We are lifted from despair into joy. We're justified through the blood of Christ. All our fears and misery and unrest that in so many ways define the human experience, they are all satisfied through the gospel. But once you taste that, and once you see that the Lord is good, you really can't help but want to fill yourself more and more with that goodness. You receive this really unquenchable desire for more, even though you're satisfied. It's this strange paradox. You're full and you're hungry all at the same time. It's kind of like my kids. Uh, Once dinner is over and they're full, you'd think that's that's it, and then the cupcakes come out, and how many cupcakes could they eat? Like endless amounts of cupcakes, apparently, right? Cookies, candy, just one is never enough. Once my children have tasted the goodness of those treats, even though they may have been full from dinner five minutes before, they're suddenly ravenously hungry all over again. And so too, the gospel should stir our hearts with a great desire to consume the Word of God that our souls might be ever more satisfied, even though at the same time they are full with all the goodness of the gospel. Now the context of Matthew 4.4 matters 
So before we kind of break this verse down into a couple of its component parts, uh, let's see what's going on here, okay? The setting is the temptation of Jesus. After Jesus was baptized, Scripture tells us that he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he fasted without food for 40 days. And he was alone, and he wandered in the wilderness with only the company of the wild animals and ministering angels. And there in the wilderness, as he was vulnerable and he was alone, Satan met him to tempt him. Now look, the fact that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness of the desert without food under the temptation of Satan is not a mere coincidence. It's not a series of random events. This setting is meant to take us, if we're familiar with God's Word, back to the nation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness after God sets them free from slavery in Egypt. And they're there in the wilderness 40 years, a perfect correspondence with Christ's 40 days. And over the course of that 40 years, they fail to resist the temptation of unbelief again and again and again. And the reason we have this story of Christ is because what we see is where Israel failed to trust God in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds and perfectly, completely trusts his Father. Where Israel failed to obey the commandments of God and place all of their hope and their faith and trust in the Word of God, Jesus succeeds, giving us a new hope for the future, where Israel whined and shook their fists at God because they thought they would starve in the desert, and they pined to go back to the slavery of Egypt, Jesus instead entrusts himself in faith to the Father, to obedience. And I want you to see that the tool of his success is the Scriptures, That's what he relies on. Satan brings three temptations against Christ, and at every point, Jesus fights off those temptations with the Word of God, with Scripture. Interestingly, as Matthew records it, the first Scripture which Jesus uses to overcome the temptation of Satan is the one that we looked at, Matthew 4, verse 4. The man does not live by bread alone but that life truly is found in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in quoting this scripture from Deuteronomy 8 first, Jesus then sets the scene for using scripture to defend himself against every other temptation that Satan throws his way. Jesus is going to stand firm in what the word of God says, in what God has spoken. He's going to obey the Word of God and delight in the goodness and the truth of everything that the Father has spoken. And so it's the truth of God's Word that anchors Jesus against temptation or in the midst of temptation. So let's go through this verse, Matthew 4-4, to see, I think, some of the wonderful details that it contains. First, we see Jesus say, It is written, it is written, And I want you to know how good our God is to give us his written word. What a beautiful thing that we are literate and able to read it, that we might study it and know it and search it and understand it objectively 
as God has had it recorded for our benefit. If you want to know God, if that is a desire in your heart and your soul, then you need to look no further than the Word of God, which the Father decreed should be written down through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. You don't have to peer into some mystical hat to understand God. You don't need to go have tarot cards or a palm reader tell you what God's will is. You don't have to take a pilgrimage to some sacred site in order to meet with God. You don't need a pope or a scholar or even a modern-day prophet to know God. You just need the Scriptures, which God has faithfully kept and guarded for more than 3,000 years of human history so that you might know God. And I want you to see the authority which Jesus attaches to the Scriptures in this phrase. He says this phrase, It is written, as if that just settles every debate and dispute about the authority of the Bible. This is a deep, deep rabbit hole if you go down it. Defending the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. And I love how Jesus just says, It is written. As if that settles the dispute. And actually, I want you to know, it does, in fact, settle the dispute. I remember uh, years ago, first seeing somebody wearing this shirt, and it said, uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And the first time I saw that, I, I, I was frustrated by it. I thought it was such a stupid, oversimplistic way to approach Scripture, right? But then God humbled me to agree. It's absolutely true. Because that's almost exactly what Jesus says here in fewer words. It is written. It is written. And this is super important for us because all through church history, people have attempted to rise above the authority of the Scriptures. It's happening today. As people within the church abandon what God has decreed about human sexuality. It's happening today as people deconstruct the inerrancy of Scripture, trying to determine what should belong in the Bible and what shouldn't. It's happening today as people rip Bible verses out of context to meet their political or social agenda, manipulating the Word of God to remake God in the image of man. It's happening today as people redefine Jesus in ways the Bible simply does not permit. And the fact of the matter is that Christians are people who study the Word of God to see what is written there so that they may then submit themselves to what is written. Only godless people search the Scriptures so that they might bend and manipulate them to man's agenda, like Satan attempted to do in the temptation of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that he too puts Scripture to use for his evil purposes, manipulating the Word of God for evil. And thankfully, God has given us his written Word so that we might search it, searching the Scriptures to know God, to obey him, to love him more, to see his goodness. Now, as we search the Scriptures, we find the truth that Jesus points to in this verse, that man does not live by bread alone, but that true life comes from God, only from God. 
And the comparison is so simple, we might pass it over. But let's reflect on this for a minute. Just as bread sustains the body, and bread being a, you know, a subcategory of food, it's standing in place of the idea of physical food. And so just as bread sustains the body, the Word of God sustains the everlasting soul. Just as the body dies without food, so the soul perishes without God's Word. Just as there can be no life in a human who rejects food nourishment, there can be no life in a human who rejects the Word, the nourishing Word of God. Now, the Greek word for life that Jesus uses here is an interesting word. The word is zao, zeo. And as you might expect, if you know anything about Greek, the Greek culture, they had a lot of philosophical underpinnings to their language. Most of our Western philosophy comes from the Greco-Roman world. And so the word zao means way more than just biological life. It's more than just material life. In fact, Greek has a different word for that. If you want to talk about biological life in Greek, you use the word bios, which is where we get biology from. Bios specifically deals with the physical life that we live. But zeo, zao, on the other hand, deals with living in a transcendent sense. Jesus is not dealing here with just merely material human flesh. Zao can be used to deal with the body and physical life, but even in that setting, it carries with it the idea that humans are more than mere flesh and blood. And so Jesus quotes this Old Testament verse and uses the word zao, life, to help us understand man is more than a stomach. You are more than an amalgamation of atoms, and life is more than food, and humanity is more than flesh. We were created to be everlasting beings, creatures that once made would spend eternity forever in the presence of God, worshiping Him and giving Him glory for His goodness. And bread may be sufficient to sustain your body, but it is insufficient to sustain your eternal soul. And so Jesus pokes a hole in the stupidity of Satan by reminding him that mankind has a far greater need than just food. Mankind needs the nourishing eternal sustenance of the Word of God. A person driven only by their stomach is a brute. We need the nourishing truth of what God has said. And where, man, where mankind rejects God's word, man shall not live. That is the consequence. A man can literally live eternally without food because your soul is immaterial. But the soul of man dies without the life-giving word of God. Think about this in the context of the Garden of Eden where we saw this. As soon as Adam and Eve traded the word of God, the everlasting food of God's righteous commands, as soon as they traded that food for an insignificant piece of fruit, all of mankind was plunged into the darkness of death. 
Their bodies lived on. But God's promise was true. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, their bodies lived because they had food, but the fact is their souls died that day. And what I want you to really see here in Matthew 4.4 4, is that Jesus uses Scripture to deflect the temptation of Satan. And I want to be careful not to overstate this, but I really do want this to be clear. As a Christian, you have lots of resources available to you to stand up under temptation. We have one another here. We have the church, right? We have close friends that we can confide in who will speak truth to us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have prayer. But the example that Jesus leaves us here is to lean into the Word of God. That's what he does. Jesus does not call upon the angels for help. He quotes Scripture. Jesus doesn't even cry out to the Holy Spirit here, although everything that he did was led by the Spirit who was always with him, but instead Jesus quotes Scripture. Jesus doesn't beat Satan back with a logical argument or well-reasoned rebuttal. He simply states what is written. Jesus doesn't say to Satan, well, that's a really interesting concept. You know what, let me take that to God in prayer and I, you know, I'll see what he says and I'll get back to you on it. No, he quotes the Word of God. In this case, he simply says what Scripture says. He quotes God. He obeys what is written. Man shall not live apart from the Word of God. There is no life in disobedience against God. Or to say it another way, there is no life for mankind outside of God's commands. Death follows disobedience, and life is found in the Word of God. Israel died in the desert because they wanted physical food more than they wanted to faithfully obey what God had decreed. And Jesus, in contrast, lived through his temptation in the wilderness because he knew that God's word brings life. Now consider this. If Jesus, the Son of God, led by the Holy Spirit perfectly, needed the word of God to this degree, how much more do you and I need God's Word? It's a rhetorical question, you know. Now, the fact does remain that we do need bread, right? If you're a Christian, you should eat. I encourage you to do that. We do need food in order for our bodies to live. That's a good thing. And God was kind to give us all kinds of flavors and tastes and combinations, right? He could have just given us plain oatmeal to eat three times a day, every day, forever. But we overemphasize our need for food as humans, don't we? Bread is good. Jesus does not deny that. But God's word is better. That's the point. And if only we could crave the food of God's word as much as we crave physical food. Have you ever been so hungry for God's word that like being hungry for your next meal, you feel famished? I mean, you eat food every day to nourish your physical body. But do you also consume the words that have come from the mouth of God, the scriptures, that your soul might also be full? Is there that kind of voracious hunger for this soul food? 
I'd be willing to bet that if we could do a scientific study on this, I don't know how you actually would, but play along with me, we would find a direct nearly one-to-one correlation between the health of our soul and the consistency of our consumption of God's Word. If we could scientifically evaluate this, we would find a direct correlation between the amount of time we spend feasting on the Word of God and the satisfaction of our soul. In other words, if you feel distant from God, it's probably directly related to the fact that you have an unhealthy diet of soul food from God's Word. You have a failure to have a healthy soul diet of the Scriptures. You are malnourished. And my guess is if I'm describing you, you you know this already. You feel it. You're experiencing it. And it's not a mystery. Brothers and sisters, if you want fullness of life, you find it in Jesus, who reveals himself in Scripture. If you want to be satisfied, you have to feast on God's Word. This is why I had Carrie read Psalm 119, the longest psalm is all about the beauty of God's Word, how precious His commands are, how the author of that psalm can say, I've seen a limit to all perfection, but God's Word is beyond that. If you want to draw near to God, you have to eat from His table. If you want the satisfaction that comes through fellowship with God, you have to commune with Him in His Word. And the remedy for a starving body is food. The remedy for a starving soul is God's word. Next, I want you to see that Jesus declares to Satan as the scriptures reveal that every word of God is life-giving for a Christian. Now look, I have parts of the Bible that I enjoy, that are personal favorites of mine that I go back to more than others. I have verses that I find particularly powerful And I also have parts of Scripture that I find difficult to read and difficult to get into. Numbers, anyone? Come on. But it's important as Christians that we agree with Jesus that every word of God is perfect and precious and life-giving. We believe that because God has spoken these things and God has preserved these words, they are perfect in every way as they perfectly reflect and reveal the God who spoke them. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, man does not live by bread alone, but by the red letters of the words of Jesus in the Gospels. He does not say, man does not live by bread alone, but by the New Testament. He does not say, man does not live by bread alone, but by the powerfully reasoned arguments of Paul. He says... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We rest on every word of God because every word of God proves true. And because every word of God carries all of the authority and power of God. We are not free to pick and choose the parts of God's word that we agree with and the parts that we don't. We accept all of God's word or we are guilty of rejecting God's word. And so it's not enough, then, for us to have a shallow understanding of God's Word. Guys, consider this. It is not okay 
that we would have a shallow understanding of God's word when Jesus said every word that comes from the mouth of God is life-giving to the human. I wish that we could do what Jesus does here in defending ourselves against temptation. Pick one verse out of Deuteronomy 8. Like, really? Who goes there? Well, Jesus. Because he understands that every word of God brings life. And so we must grow in our understanding of God's word so that we too can rejoice with Jesus over every precious, beautiful word which God has spoken. Next, I want, to, I want you to see that as Jesus quotes this verse and speaks about these words, his grammar suggests that God is still speaking. Now, this is the part in, in teaching where your mind starts to wander and fade, and it's hot, and the flies are annoying you, and you're losing focus. So maybe I should have front-loaded this, because this is the part that you probably need to think most carefully about. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, in the Greek, this is actually a present participle. In English, that would be an ing word. So you could say it like this. Man lives by every word coming from the mouth of God. And the reason I want to point this out is because there are two serious errors that have crept their way into the church arising from misunderstanding this kind of idea. The fact of the matter is that God is not silent. God continues to speak. The Holy Spirit does not have a gag in his mouth. The Father is not mute. But you need to be aware of these two errors that have hitched a ride on the back of this idea into some aspects of Christianity. The first is this. It's brought to us care of liberal theologians who deny the perfection and the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, when I'm saying liberal, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking about a strain of Christianity that I would say is not Christianity. It's theologians and Bible scholars at secular universities who do not believe that the Bible is the perfect Word of God. They do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Many of them don't even believe Jesus existed. They think he's a mythical figure. These are people who have gutted Christianity of anything true and divine and meaningful and still prance around in the skins of this religion that gave them birth. They claim that God is still speaking, but what they mean by that is that the God of the Bible is on a constant campaign of revisionism updating his word to make it more culturally palatable to people because it's old and archaic and it doesn't fit in the 21st century. To be specific, the United Church of Christ has a slogan that says, God is still speaking, which on the surface sounds nice. I'm essentially asserting that idea myself. But what they mean is that they are happy to act as God's PR department scrubbing the Bible of anything they disagree with that somebody might find offensive. And we reject that idea. They proudly sit in judgment over the Scriptures instead of humbling themselves under the authority of God's Word. The second danger, I would say, is the hyper-charismatics who claim that because God is still speaking, the Holy Spirit is constantly offering new additional revelation to pastors and preachers and prophets. 
These are people who, out of a desire to see the Holy Spirit move, have gone too far. By denying the supreme authority of the Scriptures to determine what God is saying as our guidelines for what God will say. But Jesus doesn't leave either of these options open to us. And we really don't need to go further than this verse. It is written. That's all Jesus says. We could. We could go to Hebrews chapter 1 or other places in the Bible as well. But Jesus simply just drops this bomb. It is written, and that's sufficient. Now notice the primary way in which Jesus says God has spoken. Back at the beginning of the verse, I've already said it again. Jesus says, it is written. And I find it fascinating that Jesus in this moment points to what's already been written. Does that stand out to you? When Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you heard it said, but I tell you. He takes this very authoritative stance. But right, and, and so Jesus could have said something new. He could have been like, I tell you, Satan. He could have said, the Holy Spirit is telling me. Here's some new revelation. Jesus could have exercised his own authority or offered some new word from the Father. But that's not what he does. I mean, if anyone could go beyond what is written, it is Jesus Christ, right? But he doesn't do that. Notice the importance he places on the written word of God. He says in defense It is written. He stays within the guidelines of what is written. And this is wisdom for us to follow, isn't it? The truth is God is still speaking, but since his word is perfect, he speaks through his word. That's what I want you to understand. In the song that we sung, the second one, opening our service, we said, Spirit of God, speak through your word. Do you see? And since God is unchanging, he never says anything contrary to what has already been written. And the point is, Scripture is enough for us to know what God is saying. Jesus looked no further than what had already been written, and it's wise then for us to do the same. We should expect that whatever the Holy Spirit might say, it will fit squarely within what Scripture already says. Finally, all of this comes to us from the mouth of God. What a beautiful phrase this is. Connect this with another teaching of Jesus in Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. I think it's totally fair for us to apply that truth not only to us, as humans, but also to God, isn't it? We live by the very words that proceed from the mouth of God, and those words reveal to us the heart of God, don't they? We've definitely made some detours from this idea of how the gospel works this morning, but as we get to the end of this verse, I want to come back to this idea. Through the word of God, we encounter the heart of God. It's not merely about his commands or his rules, although those are important things. It's about the heart of God, revealed to us through the word of God. We could say this a different way. Yes, listen closely, 
Yes, through the Word of God, the Scriptures, we encounter the heart of God. But do you see the beautiful wordplay on this? We could also say through the Word of God, Jesus Christ, we encounter the heart of God. Scott, I think that's what I was taking out of that phrase in your prayer. If you want to know how God's heart feels towards you, look no further than Jesus Christ as He is revealed to us in Scripture. Look no further than the Gospel where we see that God's heart towards us is love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, kindness. If God did not love us, He would not speak to us. If you have a spouse, you know that the silent treatment is very effective in communicating a lack of love. God spoke to us. He wasn't silent. He wanted us to know His heart of love. If God did not love us, He would never have sent His Son to die for us. And this is how we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father, including the Word who was with God in the beginning, Jesus Christ Himself. Christ Jesus, who is God, became man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God literally embodied His Word. How cool is that? And He speaks to all of us who have come to Him that we might have life abundantly that we might eat of His body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might no longer crave only bread to fill our stomachs, but that we might crave the body of Christ Jesus to satisfy our souls. And so Scripture shows us the heart of God who orchestrated our salvation through the death of His own Son. And Scripture shows us Jesus that we might eat of His righteousness and be satisfied. And Jesus shows us the Father, that we might know God and walk in His ways. And when we see that Scripture offers all of these things, when we taste and see that God is good, when we see that these things that Scripture contains are beautiful and they are what is sufficient to make us wise, and they are necessary for our salvation, and they glorify God in His goodness, The more we see that, the more satisfied we are, and yet at the same time, the more we long to fill ourselves with these simple, beautiful truths. So we look to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we see that it is good. It reminds us of our need, and it drives us to have that need satisfied in Him. It fills us with the joy of Christ and also leaves us hungry for more. Let me pray. God, we do thank you for your word. It is perfect. There is an end to all perfection in this world, but your word is exceptionally beyond perfection. We thank you that you had it written that we might know you and obey you. We thank you that you not only wrote your word, but that you embodied your word in Jesus Christ, that we might truly see the love that you, God our Father, have for us, even while we were still sinners. So Lord, I pray that you would satisfy our souls with the gospel, and through the gospel, give us an unquenchable hunger for your word.
Amen.